O gracious God, grant, we pray, this donation, his ministry among us, the Lord, the Spirit, to illuminate your word to us so that we would see your truth, that we would hear the voice of our master. O Lord, implore us, we pray, to hear as we implore you to give the ministry of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Turning to Acts chapter 11. Our reading this morning in New Testament is Acts 11, 1 through 18, where the apostle Luke, in his narrative, has Peter repeating to some suspicious brethren in Jerusalem the events that took place in Caesarea at the house of Cornelius. Acts 11.1, 1, beloved, this is the word of God. Please do heed it. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to to life, God's word. It is fascinating that a man who is mentioned by name eight different times in the previous chapter, Acts 10, is not mentioned at all in Acts 11. In fact, he is not mentioned again in all the New Testament scriptures. Of course, I am talking about Cornelius, the Roman centurion of Caesarea by the sea. In the events recorded in Acts 10, Cornelius was at the center. It was in his house that perhaps 30, 50, 
70 or more people, uncircumcised Gentiles, gathered to hear Peter. And it was in Cornelius' house that Peter ate food the Jews of Jerusalem considered forbidden because it was unclean according to the law. And it was in Cornelius' house that the Holy Spirit fell on these same Gentiles while Peter was preaching. Thus, it was in Cornelius' house that Peter realized that the work of God in salvation was bursting the old wineskins of Israel and pouring out into the nations of the world like some giant moon-sized vat of wine that was tipped over. It's dawning on Peter in Cornelius' house. But when you get to chapter 11, Cornelius is not named. Even though Peter is retelling events that took place in Cornelius' house, the closest Peter gets to saying the name is at the end of verse 12, where he says, we entered the man's house. Beloved, Cornelius has faded. He has faded into the background. Why? Well, not because we are supposed to forget him, but rather because we are supposed to see in his life something larger, something better than his life. We are supposed to see in Cornelius how the grace of God swallows up a man's life with salvation. The grace of God, not the merits of man. The grace of God, not a man's ethnic heritage. The grace of God, not a man's moral preparedness. The grace of God, not a man's accumulated good works. We are supposed to see this in Cornelius. In fact, I am pretty confident Cornelius would say, do not be so interested in me. Be interested in God. Be fascinated with the saving grace of God. Be obsessed with the ways of God in the salvation of sinful men. Be amazed that the people whom the God of all glory swallows up in his salvation are people who were destitute of all good and filled with all kinds of evil. Be amazed by the grace that saves and transforms people like that. Beloved, listen to me. The absence of Cornelius' name in the rest of the New Testament is a lesson to us that the story of your life is not to be the advancement of your name. You're not to be nameless, but the story of your life is not to be the advancement of your name. It is not to be the things you've done. The story of your life is not about your achievements, your honors, not even your finding God. The story of your life is not meant to attract other people to you. It should attract people to the amazing grace of God. You are talking about yourself in the wrong way if people are not hearing about the grace of God through you. That is one key lesson 
in the absolute off-the-shelf silence about Cornelius' name. How do we know this is what Cornelius' life is pointing to, the amazing grace of God and the salvation of sinners? Well, we know this because of verse 18 from our reading this morning. What an important verse. Verse 18 says, When the church in Jerusalem heard all that happened in Cornelius' house in Caesarea, they fell silent. It was the silence of satisfaction. Peter had satisfied all their concerns that started their interaction with him at the top of the chapter. Then they stopped being silent and they began glorifying God, verse 18 says, praising God, worshiping God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They didn't glorify Cornelius. They didn't glorify the Apostle Peter. They glorified God for his grace, for what God had granted. If you like to write in your Bible, underline that word granted. God had done something that if it had not been done by God, it would not have been done by anyone. God granted repentance unto life. Don't make verbs in the New Testament or the Old superfluous and unnecessary to your salvation. If the scripture says God has chosen you for salvation, if God hadn't done that, there would, no, there would be no salvation. What did God do, according to verse 18? He granted repentance that leads to life, meaning no one can turn to God unless God first turns to them, granting or gifting, if you like, or gracing, if you like, all would be acceptable translations. No one can turn to God unless God first turns and grants gifts or graces them with something they did not have. God must first grant the sinner repentance. Then and only then will we turn from the way of death and enter the way of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. What God is glorified for by the people in verse 18, it is exactly what he promised long ago through Moses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, is a perfect exposition of Acts eleven eighteen. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That promise of grace then gets carried forward by the prophets. Ezekiel 11.36 says, or excuse me, this is actually Ezekiel 31, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Beloved, please hear this. The repentance unto life, which comes to sinners by grace alone, begins in the heart. 
through the operations of the Holy Spirit. God must cleanse the heart, the inner man, not just the outer man. And the Jews, they should have always known this because of the passages I just read from Deuteronomy and from Ezekiel. Those were originally spoken to the Jewish people by their Moses, by their Ezekiel. They should have always known that true religion that bypasses the heart is satanic religion. No matter if there's a cross on the building or around the neck on a chain, true religion always begins in the heart through the operations of the Holy Spirit. The Jews should have known this, but over time they became blind to their need for God's intrusive grace in their heart. They began to believe that being a Jew outwardly was all that was necessary to enter into the life of God, which is salvation. The Jews stopped talking about needing a new heart. Instead, they boasted in the circumcision of their flesh. They boasted in their law-keeping. They boasted in their ethnic heritage. Satan took them into bondage, and they loved it. Because boasting feels like cocaine. And I don't know what cocaine feels like. I'm just using that as an illustration. But they loved it as Satan carried them into bondage. He easily got them to boast in their flesh instead of boasting in that grace from God which heals the heart of stone. But look at the events of Acts 10 and 11 together. We've just had them now in two weeks. The Jews of Jerusalem at the top of Acts 11, they get to see the old promises of their own salvation most clearly now because of the salvation of the Gentiles. Now they see it better than they ever did. In other words, if God now pours out the Holy Spirit on Gentiles, just like he did on believing Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2, It means the outward Jewishness of the Jews is not what moved God to save them in the first place. Because after all, the Gentiles have no outward Jewishness, and God is now saving them. His spirit is falling on them. Acts 15.9, he's cleansing their hearts by faith alone, which means the Jews were not cleansed from evil by anything in the Jewish law. Never forget those words. The Jews were not cleansed from their evil by anything in the Jewish law. The Jews at Pentecost who became Christians were cleansed by the application of Christ's redemption on the cross applied by the Spirit from heaven. They were not cleansed by anything in the Jewish law or Jewish heritage. Only the blood of Christ cleanses. Isn't that what Peter preached inside Cornelius' house? In verse 43 of chapter 10, he said in his little sermon, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And wonderfully, Peter, in that same sentence at the beginning, said the prophets have been preaching this always. Which prophets? The Old Testament prophets. It was being preached always that that was the only way to be cleansed, 
is through the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, and the Spirit applying the Redeemer's work. But they couldn't believe it, most of them. So let us understand the cross of Christ alone is what cleanses the evil heart of men. And that cleansing is only appropriated by faith alone when grace alone moves upon the stony heart through the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Peter will say at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15.9, recounting these events in chapter 10 and 11. He says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now the Jews know what the prophets have always been saying. You could have only get your heart cleansed by faith through the Holy Spirit. Beloved, listen now. When God grants, when God gives, When God graces, his first move is upon the heart, the inner man, not the outer man. By the merits of Christ's blood, God comes to people without merit. And by the Holy Spirit, he touches a stony heart, dead in sin, to come alive to God, unto faith in Christ. You will not be able to boast in the grace of God like the church is doing in verse 18. As long as you think you are clean before God because of things you are doing outwardly in your life. Please hear that. You will be the most anemic worshiper. You will not be able to glorify God like they do in verse 18. As long as you think that you are clean before God because the things you are doing outwardly with your life. Those only follow a prior inward cleaning, a circumcision of the heart. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Nor is conversion outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly. And conversion is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It is God who grants it to a man when he grants repentance unto life. Now someone might want to say, hold it right there, preacher. You are taking this grace alone thing too far. You need to look again at Cornelius. He was an excellent man even before Peter came and preached to him. Cornelius was a man of merit, preacher. Of course God would save a man like Cornelius. He deserved it. Someone might want to say that. I advise you not to be that someone. Shall we accept this protest against this very high view of grace that you are hearing today? We must not accept it. We must protest the protest. Let's all become protesters. When we go back and look at Cornelius, Acts 10 does indeed say God has remembered Cornelius. 
because of his prayers and his almsgiving. It's in verse 4 of 10 and verse 31 of 10. It's clear. Cornelius' love for God, his love for neighbor, are pointed to by an angel as the very reason God has remembered Cornelius and is going to bring the good news of salvation in Christ to him through Peter. Does this mean Cornelius deserved to hear the gospel? That he deserved to be saved? That he earned God's attention? That God really does help those who first help themselves? Does it mean these things? No, it doesn't mean any of these things. In the 5th century, Augustine, a church bishop of Africa, he said people would argue with him about this very thing. And he said they argued with him about it often. They would say, and I quote Augustine, Cornelius deserved to believe because he was a good man even before he believed. Augustine would then correct them. No, Cornelius already had a foundation of, of faith even before he heard from Peter. The gospel had been revealed in the books of Moses and in all the prophets. Jesus said this. Paul says this. Even Peter said it in his little sermon at Cornelius' house in verse 43 of Acts 10, that the prophets preached the gospel of sin's forgiveness. It was by faith in the promises of God that Cornelius gave his alms to the, to the poor. It was by faith in the promises of God that Cornelius prayed to the one true God. As Augustine said, quote, How else can man call on him on whom he had not believed? Cornelius believed. That's why he's a devout man. Not by works, but by faith. Issuing then in works. Augustine is right. Cornelius had already been swallowed up by the grace of God. God had already granted Cornelius repentance unto life even before Peter arrived. Cornelius believed the teaching of the Jews that God was going to judge the wicked and that God's Messiah was coming to bring peace to those far and to those near and he would heal the nations by forgiving sins and circumcising hearts. Cornelius could believe that gospel because it was in the Old Testament. Cornelius heard and believed these things better than many of the Jews did. He was living more like a God-fearing Jew, more like a Simeon who carried baby Jesus in his hands, more than he was living like a pagan Gentile. When Peter finally preaches Christ crucified and risen to Cornelius, then the Holy Spirit visibly completes what God, by grace, had already begun. So the good works we see in Cornelius are no reason for him to boast. He does good because God's grace has already circumcised his heart. God has already cleansed Cornelius by uniting him to Christ by faith. Yes, the Christ he was united to, to him, was behind shadowy figures. But the word of the prophets was clear. 
who this suffering servant would be and what he would do. God had already cleansed Cornelius, and his good works were flowing forth from his faith, given to him by grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That scripture, that scripture right there, and so many more like it, is the flashlight by which we go to understand the life of Cornelius. We should agree with Augustine when he says, quote, faith itself is first given, from which may be obtained other things which are specially characterized as works, in which a man may live righteously. Even faith is not of yourselves, but is God's gift, close quote. Well, what shall we do then with Acts 10, verse 4, and 10, verse 31, where the angel clearly says Cornelius gets to hear of Christ because his prayers and his generosity to the poor. We cannot escape those two verses that the, where the angel's testimony is that, Cornelius, you are going to be blessed. You are remembered by God. Well, it certainly sounds like... An angel, the angel, wants Cornelius to think he is being rewarded for doing good. Beloved, it sounds like that because that is precisely what it is. The angel indeed wants Cornelius to think he is being remembered and rewarded for doing good. Now, how can that be in a system of grace, in a salvation by grace? Well, this is where we have to remember the terms of the covenant of grace that God has spoken over and over again in our Bibles. Here is just one sample of it. Solomon speaking the terms of the covenant of grace at the dedication of the temple. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. 1 Kings 8.23. Did you hear that word mercy? It's in the terms of the covenant. The covenant of grace by which you and I are saved through Christ. There is free mercy, it says, always being poured out from God to those whom God has swallowed up by grace. He keeps rewarding his servants, is what it's saying, not because their works are perfect, not because their works are free of sin. No, because he delights in mercy and in the covenant rewards even the weak works. By mercy, he rewards them. <coughs> As Calvin said, the covenant was gratuitous at the start and is such it remains to the end. God rewards your good works, not because they're so very good, but because in the covenant, he receives them in Christ and then is pleased to pile you up with undeserved rewards. Are we then to be intimidated 
by how good of a man Cornelius was? Beloved, we are not to be intimidated, but we are to be imitative. We are to imitate the good works of Cornelius. We should be committed to the truth that God makes men like Cornelius through grace, and he wants to make us men like Cornelius by the same grace. This is why Cornelius' Cornelius's good works are not hidden from us. You know, there are some theologians, and perhaps even in our tradition, the Reformed faith, who would, if they were doing Luke's work, they would not mention the almsgiving. They would not mention the prayers, the generosity to the poor. They would leave it out. Not because they would say it wasn't, didn't happen, but because they, were, they would be afraid that people would hear about all these good works from Cornelius and they, would, they wouldn't understand the gospel. Beloved, the word of God keeps us in the gospel. We have just heard the terms of the covenant. So we can say with quite confidence, become the next Cornelius. Be like Cornelius. There is grace sufficient for you to be. Because what do we see in Cornelius if not the countenance of God himself? God who intercedes for the salvation of sinners. Cornelius prays for the salvation of his house. God who takes care of the poor. Cornelius takes care of the poor. That's why we can say imitate Cornelius. It is quite helpful to hear what Matthew Henry said of Cornelius. Quote, we are here told that he was a great man and a good man. Great in his military honors, good in his devout heart for God. Henry, these are two characters that seldom meet the great man and the good man. But here they did in this man. And where they do meet, they put a luster upon each other. Goodness makes greatness truly valuable, and greatness makes goodness much more serviceable. Chrysostom also said, Cornelius was a powerful man, yet he lived in such a way that it did not make his servants fear him, but made them devout. Now that is quite a eulogy. Because verse 2 of of chapter 10 says his whole household was godly with him because of him. Be like Cornelius. We who have been swallowed up by God's grace are to imitate the good works of all the best saints who themselves have been swallowed up by God's grace. But to do so, to imitate them truly, we must first imitate their faith. We must first believe what the church believed in verse 18 of chapter 11. It is God alone, by grace alone, who grants repentance unto life to us. We must believe God's grace is the only explanation for both our faith and our works. And we must be amazed by it. Only then will we have the joyful strength to walk before God with all our heart. Listen to how Paul himself says this. 
in writing to the Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of his own life, speaking of his own similarity to Cornelius, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Are you heavy laden in the knowledge of God's grace to you, a sinner saved by Christ? Well, the proof of it will be how hard you work out that grace. But pastor, don't talk that way. Why not? Beloved, grace has been given to you to be great men and good men, great women and good women. Pray. Give love according to the will of God. The good works in Cornelius's life are a testimony to us, not that works save, nor are they a testimony to us that a man is justified by some kind of cooperation of his faith and his love. No. Man is justified by faith alone in Christ alone, but the faith that justifies soon gives birth to good works. Because when a man is circumcised by the Holy Spirit and the redemption of Christ is applied to him, the very visage, the countenance, the image of God is on him. And he begins to conform his life to God. This is the privilege of the children of God, adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Let us pray. Father, forgive us where we have boasted in our works. It has never led us to anything good. Our boasting has led some of us to say, I've done enough. I've been a a good churchman for 20 years. Now I'm hanging it up. And our boasting has led some of us to despair. Because once we finished our boasting, somebody rose up and had more to boast in. Oh, Father, bring us all back to the foot of the cross where the only thing we can boast in is grace and we will not boast in our works there. Father, I pray for the the men of this church who know how to give so much of their strength to their property, to their field, their yard, their house, their barns, to their earning of income, to their name in their vocation, but are weak in giving strength to the kingdom. Father, I pray that they would be liberated from that great weakness of faith that befalls men when they look away from grace and are no longer amazed by it. When they start measuring out their strength according to what they have done and say it's enough. Oh, grant us, Lord, to be more like Cornelius, swallowed up and knowing it, 
more like Paul, swallowed up and knowing it. Lord, we know when we sit before the exam to say we've been swallowed up by grace and all is of grace, but often it is a remote, lively thought from the way we order our ambitions. Forgive us. Renew us. We would give praise, honor, and glory to this gracious God, O Father. So we can only pray, because we cannot do unless you first do. Help us, Lord. Help us walk in the amazement of grace. Unshackle us from our bondage to the things of earth and see evermore the joy of serving in the kingdom. And Lord, we pray for any among us who are unsure whether they have ever been swallowed up by grace. If there are any here today, O oh God, we pray, who refuse to repent of their sin, confirm to them that they are outside of grace, because grace gives repentance unto life. If they refuse to fight against their sin, come to them and grant them repentance unto life. And Father, we pray that this would be done to the praise of your name, not to the praise of my name or the name of any man. Save Jesus Christ, the Lord God. Amen.